Morning, everyone. Fort Worth Star-Telegram isn't a newspaper that I read just a whole lot, but it had an article a few years ago that I thought was kind of funny. It re reported on a, a lady from Houston, uh, actually, Houston's the school district, and they nominated a, a lady named Lily Baltrup. She drove buses for the school district, and over the course of a year, she had an absolute spotless driving record, and everybody loved her. So they nominated her to receive this great award for, uh, you know, the evening at the, at, the, uh, at the end of the year to receive a reward for her driving. Well, she was driving to the awards banquet, and she was driving the leaders of this uh, event, and somehow she took a corner a little too fast, and she flipped the bus. <laughs> oh, sending herself and 16 other people to the emergency room. Now, do you think they thought, well, let's, let's give her the award anyway? I mean, after all, a whole year of a spotless record. No, they didn't. They didn't give her anything. <laughs> and I read that and thought, you know, award committees don't give awards based on grace. <laughs> they give awards based on action. And you can have a whole year of perfect driving, but if you flip one bus, <laughs> that pretty much does it. You're done. I don't know about you, but I flipped a lot of buses. <laughs> I flipped a lot of buses in life and sent people to the emergency room, including myself. And uh, you've probably done the same. We have hurt people, and we have hurt ourselves through our own actions. But thankfully, the record of our life doesn't have to be spotless. God doesn't judge like that award committee judges judged. God operates on a different method, and it's called grace. And I'd like for us to talk about that some, because that's what the Bible teaches in 1 Chronicles 17. So turn there, if you would, 1 Chronicles 17. We've come quite a ways in our series on taking a single message from each book of the Bible. If you've read through the year, through the uh, Bible in a year or a Bible reading program, you get to First Chronicles and it's sort of like you're going along on a bicycle on a beach on the concrete and then all of a sudden you hit a patch of sand. You ever try to ride a bike in sand? It's really tough to do. In fact, almost impossible. Well, you get to First Chronicles. And it's almost like, why did I ever sign up to do this Bible reading plan? Because the first nine chapters of First Chronicles are just begats, you know, just genealogies. And you read this and think, why in the world is this in the Bible? This seems like a huge waste of space. Remember your history classes in school? I was often disappointed with history classes. Number one, because they were very boring. 
And the reason they were so boring to me is because I found that history classes were, by and large, histories of governments, histories of politics, not histories of people, not of lives, of stories. You know, that's why we like movies so much. We, we go to movies because we get engrossed in a life and we get the drama of life. Uh, I think it was uh, Hitchcock, Alfred Hitchcock, who said, what makes a good story is real life without all the, with the boring parts taken out. <laughs> and in a sense, that's what the Bible does for us in many places. It's not that it takes the boring parts out, but it, it leaves in the parts that are essential to the author's meaning. Um, at the end of the book of John, where John tells us there's a whole lot of things that Jesus did that aren't recorded. In fact, if we were to record them all, all the books of the world couldn't contain what Jesus did. And in a sense, that's true of all of our lives. There's so much that we've done that uh, we can't record because a lot of it's boring. And, but even if, if, if it's just the important parts of our life, you know, it'd be a pretty dense book. The Bible is God's inspired, selected events from world history, particularly the history of Israel, of God dealing with Israel, put in a book. And the inspiration of it gives us great insight, of course, into our lives. But uh, histories are selective. They have to be. The Bible leaves out a lot of things we'd like to know. On the other hand, it gives a lot of things that we don't really think are that important, like nine chapters of genealogies, first nine chapters. I mean, would our faith fall apart if we didn't know that, hey, Dad, begat, be Dad? I don't know about you, but I don't live or die on that information. <laughs> if we can only have so many verses in the Bible, I mean, if it's limited, then can we not give a little less space to genealogies and more to say, like, how to raise a teenager? <laughs> that would be the chapter that I would like to read. Of course, it's too late for us now on that, but... The point is simply that to us it doesn't make sense. But the fact is, it makes perfect sense in the grand scheme of God's plan. Because remember, First and Second Chronicles wasn't written to the same people that First and Second Kings was written to, and First and Second Samuel. The Samuels and the Kings talk about the 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 time of the the united monarchy or the monarchy, and then the divided monarchy in Israel and Judah, as the nation was together, and then it split. And then ultimately, the reason that they went into exile, especially the book of Kings, First and Second Kings, is there and it emphasizes the sins of the kings because it shows here's why the exile happened. Because God says, if you don't obey me, I'll take you out of the land. I brought you into the land by grace. But I'll tell you what, if you don't obey me, I'll take you out of the land and I'll bring you back in my good time. That's exactly what happened. So why the book of First and Second Chronicles? Because it basically covers the same period, and it just kind of reiterates the same content, except it's not the same. If you read First and Second Chronicles closely, you'll see and compare why it emphasizes the different things than Samuel and Kings. First and Second Chronicles was written to the people returning to the land, to the people coming back. And think about what had happened. They had spent 70 years in exile in a foreign land. The temple had been destroyed. Uh, they had been taken out of the land that God promised. Just imagine the emotion 
of being ripped from your homeland and taken to live with people that, that don't speak your language, that, that make fun of your God. And now, by God's grace, they get to go back into the land, and God inspired First and Second Chronicles to give a history of what happened beforehand, but it was a selected history that focuses on some very important themes. Obviously, we're not going to read through all of First Chronicles, especially the first nine chapters. But the point of First and Second Chronicles emphasizes, First Chronicles emphasizes David, it's his life, and Second Chronicles emphasizes some of the kings, particularly of Judah, and the emphasis is on the southern kingdom encouraging a rebuilding of the temple. Whenever you read Chronicles, you see that the kings that are there are the kings that are passionate about the temple because those returning to the land didn't have a temple. And so they needed to be encouraged to, to rebuild it. So that's why Chronicles is different than Kings. It's a different emphasis. Well, First Chronicles 17, King David, in the first six verses, basically to summarize those first six verses, David asks, he wants to build a temple for the glory of God. But God tells him, that's great, David, but you're not the man. You're not the man to do it. You've shed too much blood. Um, it's not that God says he doesn't want it done. He just doesn't want David to do it. But notice what he does tell David, starting in verse 7. 1 Chronicles 17, 7. Now therefore, thus you shall, say, you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, to be leader over my people Israel. I've been with you wherever you have gone, and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make you a name like the name of the great ones who are in the earth. Notice how God reminds David of his humble beginning. And notice that God says he's the one that took the initiative. I took you, he says. So God's the one taking the initiative with David. I took you, notice, from the pasture, from following the sheep. Boy, that's an important job, isn't it? Following sheep. Not leading sheep, following sheep. Interesting perspective. I took you from the pasture, from following sheep, and now look at this, to be leader over my people Israel. What does that say in a big, broad principle? Grace. Grace. God took David from a position of nothing to a position, to the very highest position. I heard a story about a couple of guys walking down a country road, and they were walking down a, a fence row. And at the end of the fence where the, uh, what do you call that thing that's at the end of the fence that basically holds all the rest of the fence up? Right, a post, but it's got some name. Corner, corner post. Corner post, okay. Well, let's call it a corner post. You know what I'm talking about. A post, of course it's a post. But it's one of those big, thick posts that's tall and flat on the top, and somebody had put a turtle on top of that fence post. And as they're walking down... They look and they say, how did that turtle get up there? There's no way that turtle could get up there unless somebody put it. 
because turtles don't climb posts. Can you picture a turtle trying to climb a post? <laughs> Doesn't work. The only way that turtle got up there is because somebody put it there. You and I and David are turtles on a post. God has elevated us to a place that we could not have gotten in any other way except by God's grace. God took the initiative to take David from following sheep to be leader of Israel. In the New Testament, Paul wrote these words to a church that was probably the most carnal of all the churches, the church of Corinth. Paul writes, Brothers, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. Think about where you were when God called you. And if you were saved as a child and don't really have a, what we often call a, a B.C. experience or a pagan past, as some might say, think of what was potentially true of you if God had not intervened and put you on a post. Some in this room have come out of a terrible past, some from drugs, some from a life of immorality, some from a lying tongue, from broken homes. Wherever you came from and I came from, whatever it was, even on our best day apart from Christ, it was a downhill slope to hell. Because God is just and God must judge sin. The standard to get into heaven is God's own holiness, and we all fall short of that standard. That's the bad news. But we are given the bad news to make the good news good because God has paid for our sins through his son, Jesus Christ. And by placing faith in Christ, the sin that separated us from God is removed because it was placed on Jesus when he died on the cross. Anybody, all, all we have to do is believe that simple message and all of a sudden we find ourselves on a fence post. All of a sudden our sins are forgiven. Grace. What is grace? Mercy is not getting what you deserve. You deserve something, but you don't get it. That's mercy. Grace is getting what you don't deserve. So it's not enough that we have been forgiven, but we have also been given something beyond forgiveness, and that is elevation. That is, we've been put on a post, as it were, that we've been given the righteousness of Christ. God told David, I took you from following the sheep to leading my people Israel. That's grace. God demonstrated his grace in David's past, just like us. Look at verse 9. It's not simply that God's taken him from here to there, but notice now he gives what David never expected. I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and not be moved again. And the wicked will not waste them any more as formerly, even from the day that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel. And I will subdue all your enemies. Moreover, I tell you that the Lord will build a house for you. When your days are fulfilled that you must go to be with your fathers, I will set up one of your descendants after you 
who will be one of your sons, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build for me a house, and I will establish his throne forever. So David had wanted to build the Lord a house, a temple. God said, David, you're not the man to do it, but here's what will happen. Your son will do it. But what I'm going to do for you, David, is I'm going to build you a house. And by a house, we're not talking about a structure with four walls, but rather a dynasty. The house of David. The dynasty of David. The line of David. All the way back from the book of Genesis, we're told when Jacob was on his deathbed, Jacob said, the scepter will not depart from Judah. Genesis 49, verse 10. In other words, the kings are going to come from Judah. And now we find out the kings are going to come from David and the tribe of Judah. God says, David, I'm going to build you an eternal house. The house of David. You know, for years, critics of the Bible read, uh, this, looked at the scriptures and said, David is sort of like a King Arthur. We don't have any existent, any evidence that David actually existed. It's just in the scriptures. There's no archaeological evidence that David existed. Uh, it, it's just King Arthur. It's legend. Until 1993 and 1994, up at a place called Tel Dan, they were digging in the courtyard of an Iron Age gate, and they, some paving stone was unearthed and flipped over, and on the back side was an inscription. And it was an inscription that was carved by an Aramean king who had conquered the kings of that area, conquered the kings of Israel, and had scribbled on there that he had defeated this person, he had defeated that person, and he had defeated this king of the house of David. And there we have had, for the first time, archaeological evidence that David wasn't King Arthur, that there really was not only a David, but there was a dynasty of David, a house of David. You can go to the Israel Museum today and see what they call uh, the, the Dan Stele. I like to call it the Stele Dan. <laughs> but it's right there, and you can see they have it marked in white, because most of us don't read Aramaic, where it says House of David. What's interesting about that, remember when we talked about Jeroboam back in 1 Kings? Jeroboam was the one that set up the, the idols, the, the golden calves there in Dan and says, oh, it's too much trouble for you to go down to Jerusalem to worship. Just stay here and worship here. Remember that, Jeroboam? Well, Jeroboam's fear, if you were to read 1 Kings 12 again, over and over he says, they'll return to the house of David. They'll return to the house of David. His fear was that the house of David was going to overshadow his own rule. The, the, the wonderful irony is that God vindicated the house of David at Dan, the very place that Jeroboam was afraid that the house of David would uh, would overshadow him. And it did, because the archaeological evidence turned up right there at Dan. And another irony is, is that it was written by an enemy of Israel. God can vindicate his promises any way he wants. He's got stuff buried in the dirt that all he's got to do is just nudge somebody to go dig in the ground, and all of a sudden God's word is verified, and his promises are shown to be fact. God made David a covenant. The Davidic covenant is what we call it. We read about it here in 1 Chronicles 17, the original rendering of it, or the original uh, uh, account, 
is in 2 Samuel 17. You don't need to turn there, or 2 Samuel 7. You don't need to turn there, but that's, if you want to read um, the details of it, you can. But the great promise that God made to David is that someone from your house, meaning one of your physical descendants, will sit on your Jerusalem throne and rule over an eternal kingdom. This is the Davidic covenant, and it is an unconditional promise to David. You know, after this promise was made to David, David had that, that uh, terrible event where he killed Bathsheba's husband, where he committed adultery with Bathsheba. And you would think, perhaps, that God would come to David and say, you know what, David, remember that promise I made you? Uh, we're done with that now. You flipped the bus. You rolled the bus and all bets are off now. But that's not what happened. God's promise to David was not negated by David's sin. Listen to a couple of more passages of Scripture. Just listen. You don't have to turn there. Just soak it in. From 2 Kings 8, verse 19. However, the Lord was not willing to destroy Judah for the sake of David, his servant, since he had promised him to give a lamp to him through his son always. Psalm 132, verse 10. For the sake of David, your servant, do not turn away the face of your anointed. From Psalm 89, verse 29 and following. So I will establish his descendants forever and his throne as in the days of heaven. If his sons forsake my law and do not walk in my judgments, if they violate my statutes and don't keep my commandments, then I will punish their transgression with the rod and their iniquity with stripes. But I will not break off my loving kindness from him, nor deal falsely in my faithfulness. My covenant I will not violate, nor will I alter the utterance of my lips. Once I have sworn in my holiness, I will not lie to David. His descendants shall endure forever." and his throne as the sun before me. It shall be established forever like the moon, and the witness in the sky is faithful. Selah. In other words, God says, is the sun still there? Is the moon still there? My covenant with David is still there. No matter what happens, I'm not going to go back on my promise. So what is the response when God's grace puts you on a post. When God gives you something, when he goes beyond simply not, getting you, not giving you what you do deserve, but grace gives you what you don't deserve, what's our response? Well, what was David's response? Look at verse 16. 1 Chronicles 17, verse 16. Then David the king went in and sat before the Lord and said, Who am I? O Lord God, and what is my house that you have brought me this far? This was a small thing in your eyes, O God, but you have spoken of your servant's house for a great while to come and have regarded me according to the standard of a man of high degree, O Lord God. What more can David still say to you concerning the honor bestowed on your servant? For you know your servant. God knows us. And the amazing thing is he still accepts us in spite of that. Elisa Morgan was the founder of MOPS, Mothers of Preschool, uh, preschool MOPS. 
um, Mops International, and she said this. I love this quote. She said, God who sees us in our worst moments does not measure us by them. That's grace. That's grace. If we knew the truth about each other, we wouldn't have a friend in the world. Isn't it good that you can't read minds? It's so good that we can't read each other's minds. That gives us the space for grace. Humility stems from a realization of God's grace. David was so humble because he realized, I don't deserve what you're giving me, God. And we can have a place of humility when we stand before God or when we consider in the presence of God because we realize we don't deserve this. We, we deserve something far worse, but God in his grace gives us forgiveness and gives us Jesus. Who am I, O Lord, he says, that you've brought me this far? What can I say about this honor? Continue in verse 19. O Lord, for your servant's sake and according to your own heart, you have wrought all this greatness to make known all these great things. O Lord, there is none like you, nor is there any God besides you, according to all that we have heard with our ears. And what one nation in the earth is like your people Israel? whom God went to redeem for himself as a people, to make you a, a name by great and terrible things in driving out nations from before your people, whom you redeemed out of Egypt. For your people Israel, you made your own people forever, and you, O Lord, became their God. Now, O Lord, let the word that you have spoken concerning your servant and concerning his house be established forever, and do as you have spoken. Let your name be established and magnified forever, saying, The Lord of hosts is the God of Israel, even a God to Israel, and the house of David, your servant, is established before you. For you, O my God, have revealed to your servant that you will build for him a house. Therefore, your servant has found courage to pray before you. Now, O Lord, you are God and have promised this good thing to your servant. And now it has pleased you to bless the house of your servant, that it may continue forever before you. For you, O Lord, have blessed, and it is blessed forever. As we read David's words, we can see he gets it. He understands that God has promised him a house that will endure forever, a lineage and a dynasty that will never, ever end. You know, the southern kingdom of Judah lasted... 300 years, and they had one dynasty, David. The northern kingdom lasted only uh, uh, 200 years, and they had, I think, eight or nine dynasties because this guy would kill this guy and take over, and then this guy would kill this guy and take over. It was just mayhem. 200 years, eight kings or eight dynasties, southern kingdom, 300 years, one because of God's grace. That's the way the Lord works. Luis Palau said these words. He said, God isn't disillusioned with us. He never had any illusions to begin with. Don't you love that? I love the way Luis says his name. This is Luis Palau. This is Luis Palau. God isn't disillusioned with us. He never had any illusions to begin with. You see, God never gets to the point where he says, you know what, this is a whole lot more than I bargained for when I decided to take you on. 
I read a tragic story about this this couple who had a uh, special needs child, and it was such a burden for them that they that the child was found parked in front of a hospital one day with a note basically around his neck that said um, we from the parents saying we can't we can't take care of him anymore there have been kids at state schools I talked with a friend years ago who said that his brother has a, a child at state school and some of the kids there his parents never visit them and they ask what did we do that our parents don't love us anymore see God never does that he never does that he never gets to the point to say, you know what, you're too much trouble. I've got to forgive you of the same thing over and over. When are you going to learn to watch your mouth? We're done. You rolled the bus. God never does that. It, he never does that. And keep this in context. Why would this be an encouraging message to those returning from exile? This isn't just about David and David's house and everything, because as they were returning from exile, there was no king. Remember, all the kings are gone. There's no king. This is the time of the Gentiles now, where the Gentiles have domination over Israel. And it's a time that began from the exile all the way up to the present day. Even though Israel is a sovereign nation today, it's still the times of the Gentiles, biblically, until Jesus Christ comes back again. How would this have been encouragement to Israel? It would be an encouragement to them because they would realize God hasn't forgotten us. We're back in the land, but we don't have a king. How is God's promise to David in effect? We don't have a king. First Chronicles tells us in chapter 17, God's not forgotten his promise to David. And ultimately, this was fulfilled when Jesus Christ was born. He, being the son of David, would ultimately fulfill this, um, this promise. Heaven comes by grace. If it was by merit, I would stay out and my dog would get to go in. My dog is a whole lot more better creature as far as if you're going to earn something than me. Now, cats would stay out, that's for sure. <laughs> but dogs would go in. If it wasn't for the grace of God, we'd have, we'd have no assurance. Back in 1937, the, uh, the Golden Gate Bridge was built in a couple of stages. Very interesting. The first stage was very slowly. They built it very slowly. The second stage, very rapidly. What made the difference between the two stages? Well, in the first stage, 23 men fell to their death from working on the bridge. And then some person finally had the bright idea, well, why don't we put a net underneath this thing? When they put the net underneath it, the net was the largest net that had been made at that time. It cost $100,000, and it, it hung beneath the full length of where the workers were working. And when phase two began, 10 men were saved from falling uh, into the water, and the work went 25% faster. It went 25% faster because they knew that even if they fell, they were safe. Now apply that to your Christian life. We don't live the Christian life just hanging on, thinking, oh man, if I fall, it's all over. You got a net. 
You've got a net. It's called grace. Now, the net isn't a license to sin. We don't, we don't take it as, as an opportunity to just sin because we know that we've got a net. We could. That's what Romans 6 is all about. Romans 6 asks the question. We don't just do it because we can get away with it. May it never be. But it's, it, it lets you learn about how to follow God. The book of Titus has a great verse. It says, The grace of God has appeared, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires. Now think about that. The grace of God has appeared, and grace instructs us to, to live a holy life. In other words, it's, it's the context in which we learn to follow God. God's grace is the context that allows you to make mistakes, to get up, and to keep going again. That's grace. That's why in verse 25, David said, we read it, but look at it again. David says, therefore, your servant has found courage to pray before you. Grace gives believers assurance of promises, and grace gives confidence of God's presence. Now, turn, if you would, to Psalm 32. Psalm 32. And let's look at something David wrote. We mentioned that this covenant given, in, given to David was given before his big sin, the big sin of Bathsheba and her husband. Psalm 32 was written after the big sin. We typically think of Psalm 51 with regard to that, but Psalm 32 is very, very important also. Look at the first few verses. David writes, How blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. When I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained away as with the fever heat of summer. Selah. I acknowledged my sin to you, and my iniquity I did not hide. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Selah. Therefore, let everyone who is godly pray to you in a time when you may be found. Surely in a flood of great waters they will not reach him. You are my hiding place. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with songs of deliverance. Selah. What great verses. What great verses and how instructive they are on the life of a believer. But notice that it, it begins with the verses, how blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven. It begins with grace. It doesn't begin with verse 3, when I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away. I acknowledged you and you forgave. That's, that's great. That's how we we get back into fellowship with God. But notice it begins on a completely different level. How blessed is the person whose sin is covered. 
and whose sin the Lord does not impute iniquity. Psalm 32. Now, turn one more place to the New Testament book of Romans. Look at Romans chapter 4. The Apostle Paul, in his great book on salvation, quotes David from Psalm 32. Romans 4. The first three chapters of Romans, he has labored to show why everybody is lost, without exception. Everyone is lost apart from God's grace. And Paul shows us in chapter 3, but now apart from the law, there's a righteousness of God that's come through Jesus Christ, through faith in Jesus Christ. And then he illustrates that, that the only way that you're going to get to God is not by living good works, but it's by grace through faith in Jesus. And in chapter 4, he gives two illustrations. The first is Abraham. And by the way, the, the point of showing Abraham is to, is to say this, this whole thing about being saved by grace through faith, that's not a new thing. Jesus didn't invent that. That goes all the way back to the very beginning. People have always only been saved by grace through faith. Abraham is the first example there in verse 1 through 4. But David is also an example, and he's given an example as an example because everybody knows David was a sinner. Look at verse 5, Romans 4, 5. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing on the man to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. And now he quotes the psalm we just read, Psalm 32. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven and whose sins have been covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. Paul quotes David from Psalm 32 to show that we're saved by grace through faith. Look at the very next chapter, Romans 5. Look at several verses, rapid fire right in a row here. Romans 5, verse 6. Paul says, For while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. Verse 8. God demonstrates his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Verse 10, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Paul says while we were helpless, while we were sinners, while we were enemies, Christ died for us. Verse 6, Christ died for the ungodly. Verse 8, Christ died for us. Verse 10, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. His point is, we didn't earn it. It was grace. It was only by grace. First Chronicles 17 that we looked at shows the endurance of David's covenant in spite of David's sin. And it was an encouragement to those coming back into the land that God will be with them in spite of their sin. And he will not give up on the promise to give them a king. And ultimately he did. Through Jesus. I love reading John Newton's story. His story is a long one, but there's a, uh, he's buried 
in Olney, England, a small cemetery in a parish churchyard. And Newton, of course, you know, he wrote Amazing Grace. And he was a, by his own admission, well, let me just read what he wrote on his, or he had written on his tombstone. It says this, John Newton, clerk, once an infidel and libertine, a servant of slavers in Africa, was by the rich mercy of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, preserved, restored, pardoned, and appointed to preach the faith he had long labored to destroy. That's what's on his tombstone. These words were written by Newton himself. Amazing Grace. Newton wrote Amazing Grace based on 1 Chronicles 17, based on David's experience of not deserving it, but God giving it to him anyway. Originally, he had uh, called the hymn, Faith's Review and Expectation. It's not quite as snappy as Amazing Grace, so somebody changed it, but that was the original title. He was a slave trader. He was vulgar by his own confession. He was as debauched as any man can be. And until the time of his death, Newton would never cease to be amazed at the grace of God in his life. Shortly before he died, somebody suggested that he might consider retirement because he didn't have good health. He couldn't see very well, and he kept forgetting. <laughs> Newton said this. Newton said, What? Shall the old Africa blasphemer stop while he can still speak? He said, My memory's nearly gone, but I remember two things, that I am a great sinner and that Christ is a great Savior. Well, before we pray, let's uh, break the mold a little bit, and let's do something we don't normally do. Let's sing. Let's sing just the first stanza of Faith's Review and Expectation, also known <laughs> as Amazing Grace. <clears throat> Let's do a piano with this. Where's the, the piano? Would you come accompany us? Amazing Grace? Pop quiz. <laughs> <laughs> but I know you know it. <clears throat> Thank you. Father, Newton's words are the words of our heart. The many thousands of times we've sung that hymn, and yet it finds a greater context as we understand that it came from 1 Chronicles 17, that it came from the experience of David, who you said you took him from following sheep to be leader of Israel. You put him on a post. 
Father, we're not kings. We don't have the nobility that David had. But you've given us something that, compared in earthly terms, is far greater, and that we are adopted into your family. We have been given the adoption as sons and daughters to be children of the living God, completely forgiven of all of our sin because of grace. Father, we ask that if there is anyone in this room that has no confidence of where they will be if they were to die today, that you would awaken them as you did to Newton and as you did to many of us already. Awaken them that their sin has a cost and it will be punished if it has not already been punished by faith in what Jesus did when he died on the cross. He took all of our sins, and it will take eternity for us to begin to give thanks to you for the great grace that you showed us when he died for us. Lord, we pray that anyone here who doesn't know him would believe, and those of us who have for a short time or long believed in Jesus, we pray that the fuel of our lives would not be to try to earn a favor that was already given to us by grace, but that grace would be the context in which we live our lives, that it's the net beneath us as we live our days, that we do our very best to love you and serve you, and that when we fail, we simply confess, as David said in Psalm 32, because our sins are forgiven through Christ. Thanks for this reminder. We need it. We need regular reminders of your grace in our lives. And we pray that as we go through the week and as we're tempted to get our mind off of the relationship we have with you based on grace, and we think that somehow that the life we live earns us your favor, that you'd bring us back to First Chronicles 17, that you'd bring us back to amazing grace, to realize that you're your mercy, your grace in our lives is what draws us and what keeps us, what preserves us and protects us, and one day will bring us home. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.